this week on the Backtable Podcast. So one of the things I've also recognized is really important to be able to kind of manage that surgical internship and really come off with a strong foothold is that fourth year has to be legitimate. It has to be a real rotation, busy sub eyes, like something like Bisla, you know, Kaiser, where you're coming in, you're really honing your, your comfort, you're doing clinic consults and cathode time, not just in the OR and you're seeing everything. And also doing other away rotations in that a vascular surgery or surgical oncology rotations are invaluable. ICU is critical your fourth year cardiology consult. So you want to get these things under your belt. So like, again, two or three IR uh, rotate, VIR rotations, vascular surgery, ICU cardiology consults are invaluable and a surgical kind of sub I on top of that to get you ready for internship beyond. And I found that to be really important to get them on the right footing leaving. So when we're looking at students applying to our program, we always look at the, their fourth year and see what they've done or what they're doing to give us an idea how ready they're going to be to implement this protocol. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. Now a quick word from our sponsor. Treating peripheral arterial disease can be challenging, especially cases with narrow lesions or complex anatomies. Medtronic's new FDA-approved Impact 018 drug-coated balloon is a low-profile DCB engineered to cross tight lesions in the SFA. Impact 018 DCB uses the same drug-coating formula as the market-leading Impact Admiral DCB. It's compatible with the 018 guide wires and comes in 130 centimeters and 200 centimeters catheter lengths, giving physicians the option to treat via radial or femoral access. Discover more at Medtronic.com slash 018. RadPad was developed by physicians for physicians. Clinically proven radiation protection during cine and digital subtraction and geography. Don't bet your career or your health on anything less. Trust RadPad radiation protection shields for all your fluoro-guided interventions. See radpad.com for more information and contact info at radpad.com for a free radiation evaluation and a no-brainer radiation protection cap. And don't forget to tell them that you heard about it on the Backtable podcast. Now, back to the episode. I'm Donald Garbett as your guest host this week. I'm very excited to introduce my special guest today. We're doing something a little bit different. Usually we have maybe one or two guests. I've got three guests. We've got Joji Vatican-Cherry, Kartik Kainsagra, and Zayim Billa. So this started with a conversation between me and Joji. And the initial thought was to talk about the, the new IR training program. And when we got deep into it, Joji was like, you got to talk to my, one of my residents. You got to talk to one of my recent grads. The, there's too much to cover. We have to, we have to talk. He wanted like 12 guests, <laughs> probably. But these were his top two to, to have on the episode. And so I thought, let's just do it. And so we're going to roll through a lot of stuff, I think. And we'll go back and forth between Joji, Kartik, and Zim to try and get a lot of, you know, useful info for everybody. But I, I thought it was an interesting topic because we all know that the new program is out there, but it, a lot of people have different ideas of what it involves, especially people who are already out of training. You know, if you're going into training, you kind of probably know what you're getting into. But this is this is probably more for, you know, people in med school who are thinking about it. And then people who are out of training already and want to know what their, you know, people coming out of training are, are, are getting trained in and their experience. So, you know, the basic change, if you don't know, that IR, VIR went through 
a change from a certificate of qualification to a board certification. Personally, I think it sounds awesome, but there's a lot of practicing, you know, VIR and DR folks that that aren't quite sure of what it entails. Um, one thing I wanted to touch base on first is that, you know, people have a, assumptions, you know, even people in my own group, diagnostic folks, interventional folks. And do you have you guys heard any of that stuff? Some assumptions that, that might come out there? Yeah, I mean, I, I'll defer to Karthik as a fresh graduate, you know, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think there was, you know, going around interviewing at a few places, there's definitely assumptions that do you, you know, care less about DR or did you, you know, train inadequately in DR? And those are kind of some of the main questions. Um, the other was, you know, if you trained so much in IR, do you plan to, you know, only do that? Or would you like to, you know, continue doing that? Or what level of complexity of IR are you trying to do? So there was a lot of questions about, you know, my training, why I had such a unique kind of training, uh, our training paradigm and whatnot. Uh, and also, I guess, did I value DR less or, you know, was I trained inadequately in DR? Those are kind of some of the main things I would see. Yeah. And I think that's what I saw in private practice too, is, you know, we're interviewing new IR folks and uh, my practice partners are like, well, are they going to want to do diagnostic at all? How are we going to figure out, you know, what are we going to do going forward in our practice? And I think it's a, a little bit of an unknown because, you know, the, the field is developing, the field is changing. So I do think that the incoming medical students, there are going to be certain things that they're going to require. One is uh, kind of what you've developed as a kind of infrastructure for clinic with longitudinal follow-up and more comprehensive management of their patients. So as kind of the, as the kind of the radiology groups are starting to look to hire these younger, newer graduates who have trained in this paradigm, they're going to need to figure out a way to build that infrastructure. So I would encourage any radiology group right now, or especially the private equity groups that have invested that finances into, you know, the infrastructure of the office, the staffing, the EMR, all that's fired, they should start initiating that now and then dedicated time for consultation. It's a thing that they're, they're being trained in and they're going to want, otherwise it's just going to feel wrong or odd. So these, these are things that you know, are going to come down the pipeline. Yeah, I think you're exactly right, Yoji. The, the, you know, trainees coming in, they're look, they're potentially looking for something different in their training now and may expect something different when they come out. I just kind of wanted to get our ears ready for the topic, but let's go through introductions. We'll go one at a time. So, Joji, why don't you go ahead? Where Let's go through where you grew up, how you got interested in IR, where did your training take you, and where are you now for everybody sure. out there that... I like to say everybody knows Joji, but maybe not everybody does. Uh, you know me. That's that's what counts now. <laughs> but yeah. No, um, so I grew up, I was born in Halifax, England, then came to Kentucky, and then New York, New Jersey for a few years, went through kind of like elementary school there, then Florida for most of my life. And then I went to school and did a, kind of the, the combo program, undergrad in med school at University of Miami. So it was a hurricane. Then uh, went to the Midwest, kind of where you folks were, um, Don in the Chicago area. So it was a, the University of Chicago on the south side of Chicago, did an internship there and then residency with Fanaki, Van Ha, Lorenz, Leaf, et cetera, over there. And then um, I came over to the West Coast to work with Tom McNamara, who was uh, one of the, you know, the early clinical interventionalists. And so I wanted to train under his kind of, uh, and I trained with uh, both him, but uh, Dr. Gomes, Tony Gomes, and uh, Dr. Paul Dong as well, but yeah, McNamara's kind of unique clinical model is something that I wanted to to learn from. So I came to Los Angeles, and shortly after that, I took a job at um, where I'm at currently, Kaiser Sunset in Los Angeles, and uh, I'm still here. 
Nice. Is McNamara still practicing? I think he is. I think he's um, in somewhere in the Nevada area now. He's not not at UCLA anymore, but yeah. I thought so. I recently met somebody who's working with him. I was surprised to hear that. Excellent. Thanks, Joji. Let's uh, let's move on to Kartik. Tell me your story. Yeah, so I'm a LA native. I grew up here in Southern California. Went to undergrad here at USC. And then I kind of wanted to get out of the area for med school. Went to Tulane. I know this, you know, podcast has some New Orleans roots. So shout out to New Orleans. <laughs> um, and as part of our med school, we rotated in radiology. And so I rotated in radiology. And part of that week I spent in interventional. And that's when I met Jim Caridi. Um, and if you've ever gotten a chance to meet or work with him, you know, it's quite an experience. And he was the one who turned me on to the field. He kind of mentored me. I remember seeing him do a taste and then like an emergent bleeder embo. And I was like, what in the world is this? This is amazing. And uh, I talked to one of my buddies who was applying to radiology at that time. And he's like, you've got to go check out Kaiser in LA. They're doing some crazy things. I knew really nothing about it. And so that summer I rotated as an MS4 to do in a way. And then that's when I met Joji. I saw what they're, you know, the, the group and the practice they had here and what they're doing. And I was just completely floored. And I was like, wow, this is what I want to do. You know, this is how I want to learn. And uh, I was fortunate enough to match at Kaiser, did my training there. I'm a year out now, and I stayed on as faculty here at Kaiser Sunset. That's awesome. So you had a pivotal moment. You rotated radiology. You met Jim, who's kind of a legend. He yeah. recently passed away. But, uh, and then you, you were able to do that fourth year with, uh, was that at Jim's suggestion to go out to Kaiser? Uh, no, it was one of my buddies who was applying for radiology like at that time. And so he had kind of, he was thinking between interventional versus diagnostics and he ultimately chose diagnostics, but he had done research in terms of a way. So I was kind of figuring out a ways. And then because I'm from Southern California, I was like, okay, let me go back to LA for the summer thinking, you know, it'll be cool. I'll get to, you know, go do some cases, hang out in the lab and then spend my afternoons and evenings, you know, chilling by the beach. But that's definitely not what the OA was like, <laughs> which was fine. And I had a great time, but, uh, you know, that's, that's when I really realized that I loved, I love this field. I love it. Yeah. Joji didn't give you any beach time. I'm surprised. (laughs) (laughs) The tanning I got was in the form of fluoro. I'm sure. That's fantastic. (laughs) Excellent, Kartik. Okay, let's let's give uh, Zaim a a turn here. Zaim, give me your tell me your story. Hey, yeah. So I'm a New Jersey native. Actually, I was born and raised in New Jersey, in South Brunswick, New Jersey. And um, so I went to undergrad and medical school all in New Jersey all at, you know, good old Rutgers. I was Scarlet Knight for both undergrad and medical school. I went to Robert Wood Johnson Medical School. And so in medical school, I first learned about, you know, vascular and interventional radiology. One of my good friends was going into it when she was a fourth year and I was a first year. Dr. Henel Patel, you know, she's just graduating right now. And so, you know, we have very similar interests. She put me onto interventional radiology. I went, checked out the department. I, I was just blown away by the breadth of what they were doing down there, you know, they were operating on the liver, the, you know, the leg arteries, veins, everything all over the body. And they had neurointerventional right next door doing stroke cases. And I was just completely blown away by the breadth of what they were doing. And so that really initially piqued my interest. And, you know, I stayed very involved with, you know, a vascular and interventional radiology interest group there. You know, I actually cold messaged Dr. Vatican Cherry on SIR Connect. And he said, you know, hey, I'm very happy to lead you on this journey to uh, vascular and interventional. And he's like, just come out here, Let, you know, work with me. And, 
you know, get an idea of what we do here. So, you know, I did a sub intern rotation at KP Visla and, you know, worked with Dr. Vatican Cherry. And, you know, it, as Dr. Consagra said, it was an absolute whirlwind. You know, I was like, oh my God, there's a million things being thrown at me at once. Clinic, technical things, consults, you know, all these different clinical criteria and, you know, imaging everything. It's really, really, you know, just drinking water from a fire hose out there. And I was like, this is craziness. But the amount of responsibility that they gave me, even as a fourth year sub, I, I was like, this is incredible. And I can only imagine what they would give me as a resident. So I just... I just basically stayed here after doing my sub intern rotation here I was, and I never looked back. So that was kind of my journey. That's awesome. So you actually got interested first year though. Yeah. <laughs> first year of med school, you were interested, Zane. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I was, I was one of the lucky ones who found out about it early. Yeah, yeah. That's an interesting perspective. A lot of, I think a lot of us find out about it later. So yeah, that's awesome. Give you opportunity to, to discover more early on. For me, it was like third year med school. I was uh, gung-ho surgery all the way through and thinking cardiac surgery. And then during my surgical rotation, I really enjoyed it. I had hepatobiliary at University of Miami with Levi. And uh, just saw these patients getting sicker and sicker after these, you know, surgical oncology cases and wondering like, huh, there's got to be a better way. And uh, I remember Swisscheck, who's at um, U of I Peoria with Brady and uh, Smoose, you know, that great group out there. And he was a fellow at the time that you have Miami and they were doing a biliary stent on the oldest person on our service was an 87 year old guy with a cloud skin tumor. And it's like nothing hit him. It was like a little drain or a little bandaid and he had a stent and he went home the next morning. Like it, nothing happened. That's when I explored this least invasive feel of medicine and go, there's something to it. Never look back. Yeah. I think it's, it usually takes a lot of people pretty hard when you, if, if you're interested in a surgical field, which a lot of us were before, I think. All right. So we got our intros done. Why don't we talk about, let's put GOG on the spot. Let's talk about the VIR program that you have. You know, how you decided, how did you decide what to include, when to include it in the training? You know, is it first year? Is it third year? All that stuff. And you can sort of give me a little rundown. Sure. Kind of reflected on my own training and kind of the, the paucity or lack of kind of the in the clinical integration, clinical training, and realize that uh, in order to do right by patients in public, we have to transform training. So I was kind of involved in like looking at the different pathways from direct pathway and clinical pathway. And I was initially thinking, oh, the direct pathway makes sense. Um, you do two years of some other specialty, and then you jump into, delve into the interventional. But the challenge is, is twofold. One is um, you didn't have enough kind of interventional or imaging or whatnot training. It's often people who decided they didn't want to do surgery. So it's kind of like cast ops. The one place that did it well, and it was um, kind of soon, uh, it was in, in uh, New York, was uh, Scalvani, Scalpani, who did this program where he took graduates of medicine, surgery, pediatrics, ER, and then they did a full-on, uh, the direct pathway. That, that group actually did quite well. And then some of the ones that were direct from med school actually did well as well from University of Pennsylvania. UPenn had a direct pathway. So I thought that was the way to go. Then I talked to Alan Matsumoto outside of uh, in San Diego at the AUR meeting, and he educated me about the clinical pathway. And um, then I met uh, a few of their graduates um, or there's a current trainees and graduates in um, Curtis Anderson, uh, Warren Sui, who many of you know, as well as Minaj Kaja. And I saw how great they were. And uh, not only clinically, not only technically skilled, but more importantly, very clinically astute and 
had the right attitude. And I'm like, this, there's something to this. So talk to Matsumoto and the UVA crew. I really delved into how they got trained and decided to kind of uh, institute that kind of a model. So the first person I got to kind of get into this model was Ken Lamb, who's now our, one of my colleagues, who he was a med student with us and, and uh, was very passionate about clinical IR. And uh, we got him incorporated in this 2226 model, which at that time, the ABR allowed 12 months of any one subspecialty. So he did two months of VIR each year and the six months his final year, uh, a PGY uh, five year. So th- that was kind of the initiation of the trans- transition. And then, um, then the ABR allowed you to do 16 months of one subspecialty when they went to this new core exam. So the core exam, and then you could do like these quote unquote mini fellowships. And so at that time I did Rob Freed, uh, made him a two, 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 uh, 10, which is two months each year and 10 months your final year. And then I also incorporated clinic with him. So he had dedicated, um, half day of clinic every Friday afternoon and see between uh, eight and 14 patients in a half afternoon. And he really kind of got it down. And by the beginning year, it was a little rough, but by the end of the year, he was able to do quite well and uh, kind of navigate these patients on his own. And that was within a year. So once the integrated happened, we transitioned Karthik uh, early on into that integrated pathway because he had, again, expressed interest. And uh, let me give you, you know, as I am and Karthik were both the outstanding medical students. In fact, Karthik doesn't hold the record for primary tastes. You know, uh, Nikki Keefe actually does, who wrote the IR playbook. So Karthik's still a little bit behind that, but that's okay. We still took him on. But he knows. So we transitioned him knowing that he'd do, he was doing well in diagnostics and he was doing well in interventional. I think he'd be a great transition, great first, you know, or third experiment, I would say. So Karthik actually started clinic. No matter what rotation is on a DR, he's doing a half day clinic every week with me. And uh, he had his own patients and panel and he got his own referrals and he started doing that. So that was when I started to see the transition. And then we started incorporating morning lectures. So Monday morning would be IR playbook right now at 7 a.m. And then Tuesday we do a vascular uh, multisphere conference and then hepatobiliary board. And then Wednesdays and Fridays are dedicated kind of vascular and eventually their journal club, which is usually prospective trials, or we do didactics talking about clinical concepts such as BPH or AFib or hyperlipidemia or whatever it may be. And they review some best cases. And then Thursday, they do core radiology. So they do the core textbook and review a chapter. And so we did that for the IR residents and all the, you know, and so that's kind of been the implementation and transition. And then Harut just uh, is a year behind Karthik and just graduated and is, um, is uh, even out, you know, his numbers are even greater than Karthik's as far as his experience from clinic and procedural experience. So I think it just continued to improve. And now Zayim is, uh, you know, is a PGY four, recent four. So you can talk about their experiences as they transition through this. And so we're just keep on tweaking it, but it's, um, this is the way. So you were, I, I, I didn't realize that before. So you were already doing this pathway before the yeah. official transition to residency. You were already increasing the IR experience and, but the clinic. So exactly. So a lot of these programs never did that. They trained fellows, they never trained residents. So the interesting thing that I had going for me is I was a DR program doctor for years before integrated BIR. So by being DR program, I knew the nuances of, of the DR training and what was required to kind of succeed in that element, right? Because that's what I was focused on, passing boards, doing well in in-service and making sure they got volumes and experience and really tweaking the DR rotations. So that really gave me a lot of um, insight into how to do this optimal. And again, talking to graduates from different DR direct pathways and the clinical pathways really helped me to hone our practice and our training paradigm. But I have 12 years of, of experimenting now. <laughs> You've definitely been tweaking for a while. So the 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 one question I do have on that um is that the clinic, the continuity clinic, 
had you started the continuity clinic before the board, before the change to the board certification, or was that after? That was um, by the time Rob Freed was uh, ESI or like kind of a clinical pathway resident, so to speak. Uh, we did transition to where he had his own continuity clinic. They would go to clinic half day a week, but it wouldn't be every week, no matter what rotation they're on, et cetera. Um, that changed with both the clinical pathway, the 16 months, and then finally the integrated, where now they have, you know, half day clinic every week. And really to be, I'll give credit to where credit's due is Karthik, who brought this up to me, you know, our trainees have amazing ideas. And so I just kind of listened to them go, yeah, it's a good idea. Let's implement it. And so Karthik's like, hey, look, the other surgical divisions have this and IC has this, and we only have this much clinic total days. I'm like, yeah, you're right. We got to fix that. So we transitioned that from the procedural suites to the clinic operating. And no matter what, they have to go to clinics. And so it's their patients that they're seeing in the clinic. And so there's a sense of responsibility um, for them and they enjoy it. That's their patient they're seeing in follow-up, um, whether they do the procedure or not, the patients are relying on them to guide them. So I think the clinic really, really took off when Karthik um, was a resident. I'm sure Karthik is aiming to talk about that more. Yeah, I want to go into that too. And I, you know, from my own personal experience, I was at Indiana University. We had, you know, we had a, a plentiful clinic experience, but, um, you know, continuity clinic was a very different, uh, is a different concept than we had. You know, we did clinic. So we're seeing and evaluate patients, but there was no guarantee that I'm seeing that patient again. So it was sort of, you know, like, I'll figure it out. And then uh, somebody else is going to see that patient next time. So it, it wasn't necessarily continuity. And what you're doing is a lot, I think it's a lot more helpful for training. But let's jump into Kartik now, because you have, I think the perspective you have is interesting, because you were a, you were a third year, right? You were a PGY, do I have it right? You were PGY3 when you converted into um, the new pathway. But you, I mean... From what Joji said, you were already getting a lot more IR experience than the typical. And you were also instrumental in developing, uh, helping develop the new program, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I did help him. You know, obviously it, it is his brainchild, but uh, we just kind of helped, you know, added components to it. But like you said, you know, this is a system he's had in place well before I came. It just kind of went and under, it underwent a formal name change. The one thing that I did, you know, kind of like he and I were talking about, and he loves to say, you know, you don't, you can't spell clinical or clinician without the word clinic. And those of us that have a clinic know how important it is to building a successful, you know, vascular interventional practice, as well as the relationships you build with the patients. And so I said, one day I was like bored, I remember, and I did very crude mathematics. And I said, okay, let's assume an interventional cardiologist does this much clinic in their like six to seven years of training, a vascular surgeon, you know, I picked these because, you know, at that time, you know, there's all this discussion about turf wars, which is a term we don't really like using. But, you know, I was like, okay, let me just take a look at these two fields. And I was like, they're doing so much more clinic than you would get exposed to, even if you just did it, you know, your entire PGY6 fellowship year. And so I brought that to his attention. I said, hey, you know, when we're making this residency, we have to figure out a way where we can match or beat their clinical experience. So when our trainees go out, they can compete, you know, and when they're competing, they're competing at that level, if not above that level. Um, and to be able to do that, you have to have that clinic base. So you know that when a primary care doc refers your uh, refers their patient, they'll know you're going to take care of them and take care of them in the you know appropriate way, not only before or during the case, but even thereafter longitudinally. And so that's where we decided we wanted to have this longitudinal clinical experience. And so we said, let's set up 
kind of this expectation that they're always going to be in clinic no matter their rotation, whether it's a diagnostic radiology rotation, one of their clinical rotations like ICU or, you know, CCU or stroke neurology, whatever, but they should be in clinic at least that half day and those are their patients. And so you're tied to an attending who's supervising you. And so they're obviously kind of taking care, you know, alongside you while you're learning, but these are your patients and you're setting up their follow-ups. And, you know, since we've been doing that, it's been great. I mean, I, like you said, transitioned my PGY four year when we got approved. And so I had a more of a truncated experience than Zaim's going to have, and as did Harut. But even during my time, I had around 500 patient encounters. And it was a good mix of fresh consults, like immediate post-ops, as well as, you know, some patients that I got to see that were part of Dr. V's clinic at that time, who were, you know, two, five, 10 year follow-ups. And so you build this natural history data that I think is invaluable. I mean, you can read about it, but, you know, when you see somebody five years after like an ablation or, and you know, what they've gone through during that five-year span, like what new tumors happened, you know, when they got their transplanted, what happened after the transplant, you learn so much more than I think you could in that you know, fellowship year or six year span in residency. And so that's when I knew, you know, the longitudinal clinic was a must. And, you know, if I think any training program was looking to add one thing, I would probably put that at the top of the list. Nice. I do have a question on that. So you're, you're, you're having your continuity clinic. And so you're following them, but you're not necessarily doing and the procedures on them, right? Like it could be you, it could be somebody else, depending on what's going on. Right. So you as a resident, sometimes it was hard, right? Because obviously during those PGY two through four years, there's a lot of diagnostic rotations you have to do. So you're not operating during that time. I mean, the attending you know, who you're staffed with, your clinic is kind of tied to, they're the ones doing the intervention. So you do still get that, you know, feedback from them. But you're right, you aren't the one who's always, you know, the one operating on that patient. But I'll be honest, you know, what I learned was, uh, and it's kind of this aha moment I had as a resident was, you know, sometimes as an attending, you have patients in clinic that you just, for some reason, your schedule or you're going on vacation doesn't permit you to operate on them. And so one of your partners is the one who's going to do it. Um, Or even in the hospital, sometimes you'll see the console, but someone else is the one who's going to do the case. But, you know, what was so shocking to me was when you see those patients in clinic afterwards, they always thought the person who they saw in clinic was the doctor who like did it. Or, you know what I mean? They'd always want to thank the person they saw in clinic, like their association for their treating physician, even though, you know, someone else was the one who came in the middle of the night to save that patient's life was whoever was seeing them in consultation or in clinic. And uh, so for me, I realized that that's really the true like relationship with the patient. Yeah. You know, it's great to be the one who gets to do the fun procedure, but having that relationship in clinic was, uh, I think that's kind of the whole theme and motto of their continuity clinic. Um, and then Alvi, as you progress to your five, six year, by then you're doing, you're the one who's doing the procedure on your patient as well. Yeah. And what I tell my trainees is 15 minutes in the clinic, 15 minutes in the clinic with a patient is worth an hour in the hospital, right? In the, in the bed. So that time that you spend in the clinic or in the holding area, whatever, at 15 minutes with them, not in a gown, not an IV, not scared right? Uh, with time to process what's going on is, is invaluable. And so I think that's something. And, and I also say another thing from a training standpoint, this is why I'm so passionate about trainees, their total potential. They're not like, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. You can certainly teach students. They're very open, right? So 15 minutes with a student is worth a month with a resident. Sorry, guys. It's worth a year with a fellow, right? It's that impactful. So um, these are kind of things that I've <laughs> seen from a patient standpoint and a trainee standpoint. Yeah. I think this is a very important point to bring home and a, and one that is probably a challenge for some of us out in the rest of the community that we need our partners who may not be 
VIRs to understand the importance of clinic and that 15 minutes and managing the patient. And it's a challenge. It's and it, it, I think it's going to be a continuing challenge until there's more acceptance. But ultimately, it's going to be the right thing, right? We just have to assume we're on the right side of history because, you know, conference management, non-operative management is often the way to go. And and as I even could tell you, when we're looking at our diabetics, not only really look at their feet and loss of protective sensation, but we're also looking at their, we're talking about their visual uh, acuity and making sure they get their vision exams and their microalbumin, make sure, and they're making sure they're ASO ARB. So we're, and then look what their A1C is in guiding and counseling on that. So we, we do, when you do that, you're providing quality care to the patients and it's pretty rapid. The more, the more clinic you do, the faster you get at all these things. Smoking cessation. I mean, the impact factor stopping smoking is so great on our patients. So even if we get a few to stop, and it's a huge victory, you know. So I think that 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 importance of this to the public and to the patients cannot be um, underrepresented or underemphasized. Yeah, there's a tendency of a lot of uh, you know VRs to say that's that's the primary care doc's job. I think I don't know if you guys have heard that, but that happens. Yeah, but we're doctors. Exactly. Doctor first. We're physicians. I love to we're say We're physicians. That. When anyone's coming to you, they're, they're, they're engendering trust in you, right? So we have to fulfill that. You know, it's our Hippocratic code, prima necessary. Should we not, could we? And we are part of the thing. And good thing about Kaiser, they're very active about recognizing this, right? Our impact on the public is, or the patient population is far large. And one of the things we do is what's called a proactive office encounter. So Zaim and Karthik, when they're having a clinic, they're assessed on, are you doing, are you making sure these patients have appropriate screening for mammo, cervical cancer, um, colorectal cancer screening, et cetera, appropriate therapies there. And then also, do they get the vaccination flu, COVID or what have you, and in this day and age. And, and then the, what the A1C and the LDLs are. So in smoke cessation, so they're, they're kind of stratified based on how well they do. And we are as specialists compared to other specialists because it's just the right thing to do, right? From a public standpoint and a patient standpoint, it doesn't do you any good if you fix one problem, but they dive another and you say, it's not my responsibility or they have a morbidity from another event. And that unfortunately happens way too much in healthcare right now. It's not my problem, I'm too busy, but the patient doesn't, doesn't care, right? Your family member, if they go to see a physician, should get that kind of care, right? So why aren't we providing that? Because we're too busy? Well, then we got to change the system, make it more efficient, but we got to fix that component of healthcare in general. Yeah, I agree. Very important point. And that's interesting that Kaiser... So there's a system in Kaiser that's uh, motivating that? Is, that? is that what you're saying? Yeah. So, I mean, if we look at our own thing, we're a tertiary coordinator center, about 100,000 of the physician visits because of our multiple specialists is only primary care. There's another hundred so thousand that are only seeing a specialist throughout that year. So if they're only seeing a specialist throughout that year, they're not getting these care gaps addressed. So this is probably true throughout the country, right? And the world. So again, this is an opportunity to impact a patient's life if we can do these things. That's a really interesting data point, honestly. I've never heard that before. So in that, is that the whole system or is that just Kaiser so Cal, LA. Kaiser LA, I mean, for our facility, which has a lot of tertiary coordinary people, but yeah, but it's just something to think about, you know. But that's essentially we, half the patients. It's a, it's, well, I mean, yeah, half the patients that we're seeing in our facility. Yeah, it's not a, it's not a trivial amount of impact that you could have from yeah. a public standpoint, right? Because really at the end of the day, my goal is to prevent disease, yeah. really, not to take care of them at their end stage. So we can prevent illness, mm-hmm. right? We've impacted the public in a far greater fashion and then I could do this multi-vessel uh, aneurysm repair, you know, with uh, you know, patients who could have stopped smoking at an early phase. 
So I want to prevent that issue rather than uh, treat at the end stage. That's that's very cool. Well, I want to, I want to, I would love to go more deeper into that too. But uh, I want to give Zayn a chance to tell us about his entire experience. He's now PGY four, brand new PGY four. Um, so Zayn, go ahead and give me if you can give me a rundown of you know where your your entire training uh, since you started and you know the experience for everybody to hear everything you've gone through. Yeah, so I was lucky enough that, you know, I was the first year to match directly into the VIR program here uh, when it transitioned to an integrated program. And so by the time I was here, a lot of these building blocks had already been put in place by Dr. Consagra and Dr. Vatican Cherry. And so there are some differences in the training that I got versus the training that Dr. Consagra got. Uh, the first being that I did a surgical intern year for my PG1, PGY1 year. And so that's, you know, when you match to our um, integrated program, you are automatically funneled into a surgical year. So it's a categorical program where you match and your PGY1 is already set to be surgery at our facility. And the surgical year, I think, was incredibly valuable to my training. I think personally, my bias is that, you know, all integrated IR residents should do surgery. Uh, I think one of the main reasons for that is just because the mindset is very similar between us and surgery residents, uh, by the way of, you know, managing being in the OR, managing your patients on the floor, going to clinic. There's a lot of things that you have to triage at any single point during the day. And at every minute as a surgical resident, I was triaging what is more important for me to do now and how do I get everything done very efficiently. So I think that developing that skill set early on and being efficient and being able to triage problems and just, you know, kind of being very busy as a resident, that's something that gives you a very good foundation to, you know, being successful in our field of vascular and interventional radiology. You know, there are other countless benefits, you know, I think working with surgeons very closely, I think surgeons are very good at looking at their own imaging and planning uh, their surgeries and knowing the anatomy, knowing the relevant anatomy, scrubbing into, you know, surgeries with our attendings, seeing the anatomy firsthand, you know, in an open surgery, and then going back at the imaging, I think gives you a better understanding of the 3D anatomy when you're looking at say a CT scanner and MRI. And I think that, you know, the manual dexterity that you get with operating from an early stage, you know, I did probably at least a hundred cases as an intern and the dexterity that you get with that, the surgical skills that they teach you, I think are invaluable. Uh, so I think that I got so much out of my surgical year. I would all, I would do it all over again. And I suggest that all future trainees do the same. And then I did a month of interventional radiology when I was an intern and then, you know, starting my PGY2 year, as Dr. Vatican Cherry said, that's kind of heavy diagnostics, but every year between PGY2 through four, we do two months of vascular and interventional radiology. And then, as you said, we do the half month of clinic every week, no matter what rotation you are on. And then you have the morning conference five days a week. Uh, so you're still getting a lot of learning for vascular and interventional throughout the year, I felt like between my uh, VIR rotations, I was not losing clinical knowledge. Maybe the manual dexterity stuff, uh, you know, the field things, the technical stuff, 
that would, you get a little bit rusty, but every time you're back on service, the learning curve gets faster and faster to get those skills back. So that's kind of how my journey has been so far. I was the first one to have all of this integrated uh, component to my training from the start, starting my PGY one year. So I started clinic with Dr. Vatican Cherry, you know, not only as a sub I when I was a fourth year medical student, but as an intern and I've been doing it uh, PGY two through four ever since. So I want to just take out some highlights from that and, and kind of summarize a little bit. Yeah. So your first year surgery intern year, and you did get an opportunity to rotate through IR that year as well. And then every year ongoing, you're doing two months of VIR. You're also doing your continuity clinic starting from the beginning, it sounds like, right? Right. So once one day a week, you're, you're having a, a clinic day, whether or it sounds like it's a half day each week. Is that correct? Okay. And then how many days you're having actual, you're, you're involved with IR in the conferences every day as well. Yes. Throughout your entire uh, training period. So your entire residency. Yep. So that's, that's a good uh, combo. I, I, it's interesting. And I think that's important for people to know out there that uh, even when you're on your diagnostic rotations, you're still getting IR in some form that whole time. Right. And the other thing I'd like to add is, you know, we get ICU time as well starting from PGY one year, we do a month of ICU. Um, right now, currently, it's kind of a combined MICU-SICU kind of deal where you're you're managing both medical and surgical ICU patients. You're doing about 80 hours of ICU as a PGY two. Uh, for me personally, that was like at the peak of the COVID pandemic. So I, you know, I volunteered to work in the COVID ICU for two weeks. I was off a diagnostic rotation. It was it was crazy at its peak in January 2021 in LA. It, it was an unforgettable experience. And I had Dr. Consagra, when the pandemic first started, he worked in the COVID ICU as well. And then, you know, as a PGY3, I did um, a month of CCU as well to add to that experience. So we get a lot of ICU experience as well. Yeah, let me comment on that real quick. So. Uh, Karthik, when did you volunteer in the COVID ICU? What month? Uh, yeah, so uh, it was PGYF. I mean, basically I was on, you know, VIR and then COVID basically was at its peak. Our ICUs were jam packed and they stopped all elective cases. Everything elective was done. And basically on IR, not much was going on. We had a few, you know, the inpatient side was a little busier and ultimately they decided for trainees, they didn't don't want anyone there. And so I got sent home. And the first day I was at home, I was like, man, I'm way too bored. And so we, I had a really good relationship with our ICU folks because we had done so much of it. Um, and, you know, I'd worked very closely with them to help build our ICU curriculum for the VIR residency. And so uh, myself and one of my co-residents, you know, was at that time, Matthew Zartan, we reached out to them and we said, hey, you know, we know you guys have been kind of, you know, overworked and you're understaffed. We're happy to help however you know you need because we were comfortable dealing with patients on vents and you know ventilatory management and we knew it was a little bit different this time you know it's different kind of settings they're using but we were happy to help happy to you know learn uh and yeah so it was pg5 at the peak of it i i went and then you know joji heard about it and he's like dude what are you doing i was like dude you know the, the the team the system needs us and i'm bored out of my mind at home and it's something you know i know and i feel comfortable with so i might as well do it um, and so he was like, okay, my wife thought I was a lunatic, <laughs> oh. but mind you, this is before vaccinations. It's the early were days. Out. 
And yeah, it was yeah. pretty, we didn't everyone, know what we were doing then. Everyone was scared, right? <laughs> everyone is freaking out. And like, this guy's like walking to the fire and you know, your residents like become your family, right? So I was like, oh boy, you know, be careful. And, uh, you know, I definitely had trepidation, you know, but he didn't, right? Uh, but, you know, the thing is, because of so much uh, ICU uh, management, the, the, the attendings there were very appreciative because they're acting like almost like a fellow or senior resident. So I think their integration, as opposed to the current re regimen where you're PGY-5 with four-year gap, essentially, or no ICU experience, you go as a five, you're basically a glorified um, imaging consultant, not a uh, consult, you're not, not acting on patients. So this integration, PGY-1, 2, 3, and 5, has been invaluable for us. So I didn't I didn't catch that in the explanation of the full program. So when tell me again exactly when is the ICU experiences? PGY one they do an ICU uh, month. It's kind of you sick you. PGY two they're they do eighty hours of coverage usually nights or weekends. PGY three they do a CCU month, and then PGY five a MICU CCU month, and also stroke neurology. And that was Zayim's behest the stroke neurology um, to add in the five before their three months of neuroia. That was that was a topic I wanted to cover too, the stroke neurology. And Zayim, you could talk about like, you know, we even rounded on one of our, our ICU patients together as a group, all the Vistle residents on uh, Friday morning, right? How was that? Right. So we had teaching rounds in the morning, uh, right before a conference, we had our all of our integrated residents come together, our MS4 sub-interns, uh, and we had teaching rounds in the ICU. We had a patient who had a very complex physician modified endograft who, you know, post-operatively was in the ICU, you know, he had to be on pressors, transfusion. Um, and so we went to the ICU, Dr. Vatican Cherry did a teaching rounds. He went over his personal algorithm for how he um, assesses an ICU patient, drips, vent settings, pressors, all that stuff, you know, um, non-invasives, everything. Uh, and so we all got to learn his approach. We all got to visually see it and discuss the patient at bedside. So that's another thing that, you know, adds to our clinical experiences, being able to go up with an attending who has been doing this for years and learning from his experience directly. That's, that's great. Yeah, uh, you know, that, that makes me think of one question, you know, I'm going through internal medicine, intern year and, and sub I and all that. I remember we would do, you know, teaching rounds every day. <laughs> is that, do you have dedicated teaching rounds time? Or is that more so like there, here's a patient that we're going to do, we're going to routinely, or here's a certain case we're going to do teaching rounds on. How does that work for you guys? So we don't always have teaching rounds. I think it's basically when we have a patient who is a very good teaching uh, patient where there's a lot of complex things going on. It's very high yield for all of the trainees to experience this. You know, I think that's when we have a very valuable teaching as where we can get everyone together, even if they're not on rotation, uh, even if they're on diagnostics, they come and we evaluate the patient together. That's cool. So you can run around and be like, and grab up all the IR folks, say, hey, we're going to go see this patient. Let's talk about, let's learn. So we do it before 7 a.m. We'll go together and go round. Uh, okay. So that's how we do it. So we still make it to conference at 7. We'll have everyone come in early that morning. Oh, that's great. I like that too. You brought up the stroke neurology thing. I wanted to touch on that. So maybe, Zayim, why don't you go into the stroke neurology idea? Are you, have, you've already done it? I forget. I have not done it. 
Um, I'm looking forward to doing it next year, but it's something that uh, Dr. Vatican Cherry and I had discussed when putting together the schedule this past year is that, you know, as a PGY-5, we get three months of neurointerventional radiology. Uh, and, you know, you do a lot of cases during those three months. But what I wanted to understand is the medical management and how to evaluate uh, those patients clinically before I go into that month so that I can understand how, you know, the technical aspect, the operations that the neurointerventionalists do fit into the overall clinical picture and, you know, really master the indications, the physical exam that they do, you know, the niche score, all of these things that neurologists know that I want to gain from their experience and knowledge before going to my neurointerventional training uh, so that I could put it all together in a comprehensive manner. I think that'll be incredibly valuable to me. And it's just something that, you know, Dr. Vatican Cherry and I were going back and forth on. And I was like, you know, I think this would be a good idea. And he's like, yeah, I agree. Let's just throw it in. Uh, so it just showed me as a trainee how fluid our training program is and how easy it is to make changes because, you know, as Dr. Vatican Cherry said, he started off as a, you know, a diagnostic radiology program director. So he knows the in and outs of that. And now he's our interventional radiology program director. And so just having that experience, it's very easy to implement changes because he knows all the requirements and where there's room for flexibility. And just to, to review that, so you'll be doing your stroke neurology leading into your three months of neuro IR? Exactly. I'll be doing it right before my neuro IR rotation. And that's going to be in your PGY4 or PGY5? PGY5. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And I think you guys have probably seen the papers coming out recently that, you know, that uh, looking at if there's differences between fellowship trained neuro IRs versus uh, body IRs doing doing stroke intervention, that outcomes are essentially, you know, there's no difference detected in this, the recent studies, which goes into that really well, because you're essentially kind of getting training in that, you know, the, the neuro IR folks are getting training in a whole lot more, right? They're doing aneurysms and AVMs, but it, it you know, this is three months of just an opportunity to learn stroke, which is, I think is great. I'm currently, you know, doing that in my practice, but this was, I had to learn it outside. And it's a big difference trying to do that after you're already you've already gone through training to do that again. And to ask your family, I need to take more call, I need to do all this extra stuff. But uh, let's come back to Karthik because you you did tell me your your experience with the stroke stuff. Yeah, so like Zayim said, you know, my training was a little different because I, I did integrated medicine when I matched diagnostic radiology. And so at that time, you actually did stroke neurology your intern year as well. So I did a month then, and our neurointerventional rotation schedule when I was kind of going through the system was also a little different. We did one month as a PGY-4, and then you did two months as a PGY-5. So you did the same amount of kind of training. It was just spaced out a little differently. Um, and then we sat down with our neurointerventional folks, and they're like, you know, I think it's better if we just do all three as a block, your PGY-5 year. So that's what prompted that change. The intern surgical year doesn't include that stroke neurology kind of training month. And so that's what prompted that addition as a PGY-5. But we do this kind of the same training. But, uh, you know, like Zayim said, that stroke neurology month was invaluable for us. Um, 
learning kind of the medical management, you know, the workup evaluation of these patients, I think it's going to be even more impactful as a PGY-5. Because a lot of, I remember the intern year, they'd go through the imaging and I was like, I don't even understand what I'm looking at. Like, why are there so many images for an MRI? But now that you have, you know, kind of that all, you know, all of that stuff down, it yeah. becomes, I think, a lot easier to digest the medical side as opposed to trying to learn both as an intern. So I think Zyme's experience is going to be even more impactful and useful. And uh, from a neurointerventional side, yeah, it's a, we have a very busy neurointerventional practice. There's three neurointerventional docs here, and we do kind of everything like you mentioned. Between, uh, in addition to stroke work, I did countless you know, cerebral angios. And our docs are really good. We don't have a fellowship here. So basically, you're a primary operator. Um, and a lot of times we'll be running two rooms. And so I'm doing an angio, you know, in one room while the attending supervising are doing an angio in another room. And so we get really good hands-on experience from a neurointerventional side. We do a lot of endovascular aneurysm treatments as well. And so, you know, those three months were invaluable. And then, you know, Joji will swear by it that whenever we go through those, you know, neurointerventional months, we come out technically a different beast, you know, cause they're, you know, you know, as you know, you know, it's. When you're dealing in the brain, your your technique has to be immaculate. And, you know, sometimes you'll see the, the occasional air bubble when someone's injecting that vein, you know, in the thigh or, you know, in the pelvis. But here, you can't have that. And so, you know, that, the wire management, um, you know, dealing with, you know, smaller caliber catheters, you know, smaller wires and everything. Uh, from a technical standpoint, I think we also all got a lot better during those months. And we can't, you know, a lot more finesse, I think, went into to our technique. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. Agreed. <laughs> I think that's, yeah, definitely. I think it's great that you're pushing it. You're, you're bun especially that you're putting it together near the end. Yeah. I like that. I think that's another important concept is that the more consecutive months of neurovascular training, the better, whether it be neurovascular or peripheral neurovascular. So that's why we do back to back months. So they're PGY two, three, and four. My goal is really the three, four to almost have a five month block where you have the four months of VR, the month of CCU, kind of as a pure clinical block, and then or in the the early PGY-4, you finish those VIR months and the rest is really dedicated to focusing on the core or the boards and, and DR, you know? And so that's how we've kind of inculcated our, our training paradigm. Well, and also just at that point, you, you, you understand your neurovascular imaging, mm -hmm. I think probably a lot better by that point, you know, perfusion is basic to you. Whereas early in training, you look at a perfusion and yeah. it's just like, what is all this? <laughs> or knowing what's M1, what's M2, what's M3, and, mm -hmm. and you know, your posterior circulation, just knowing all that stuff, being, being uh, facile with NASIT, and then learning the whole stroke neurology of, you know, who are you putting on aspirin? Who are you doing dual antiplatelet? Who, are, who, who can be on heparin? And, and what's the blood pressure management? Uh, you know, they got TPA. What's your low and high for blood pressure management? Just understanding that stuff from basics uh, is important. And later, I think I do feel like later in training is a better time to do that. And which agents, right? Like, are you just going to, you're going to avoid hydralazine, and you're going to use clofidipine, libidol, et cetera. So what agents are you used to titrate? Um, yeah, there's a lot that goes into it. So I think they, they get a firm understanding with all their intensive care training. And now this, it really hones their, uh, their chops. Yeah. So we have a couple more things to talk about. So I want to give you all some questions. And I guess these are more for uh, Zaim and Kartik looking at the the workload. So, I, you know, talking to all you guys before the episode talked about kind of, you have all your diagnostic work, the same as your other diagnostic uh, trainees, then you just essentially have additional IR workload beyond them, including your extra conferences and extra work to do. So tell me, how did that feel? Or what does it seem like to you? Maybe start with Kartik? Yeah, sure. Um, so kind of like you said, and 
you know, we do all the DR work that our diagnostic radiology colleagues do. And on top of that, we have our own specific vascular interventional kind of obligations and work, which includes additional call in the form of vascular interventional call, uh, ICU training, and our morning lecture series. So it is definitely, you know, more work on our part. Me personally, I, I didn't mind it. I understood, you know, it's kind of a means to an end. And it was something I had to do to get the training I wanted, but it does mean you are getting, you know, a little bit more work as it stands now, which is interesting because uh, my, you know, four or five year when I went to SIR, we did this kind of, you know, rudimentary chiefs gathering where a lot of us who were program uh, chief residents got together to kind of talk about the IR residency and what people are doing where and what they're having trouble with, what they want to change and how they're kind of fixing things at their institutions, just so we could all improve, you know, what we were doing. And one of the common things was, are you doing the same amount of call, more call, less call than a DR? DR doing IR call for you as well? Or, you know, are you doing less DR call? And I think the vast majority of what I heard at that time, and I don't know if it's changed since then, was most uh, VIR residents were having to do more work, I think, or, you know, in terms of call at least. And then probably also in terms of, I'm sure other obligations or, you know, rotational stuff as well. And I guess I am uh, kind of the same thing, but uh, I guess maybe you have a cohort of diagnostic residents with you. Is, you know, is there a perception that you're working harder, you're taking more call, or is it really just separate? Like, what's the perception? I'm just curious. You know, I think there is a perception that the, you know, IR residents in our program have more work that they do work harder because I think everyone understands that we do our IR call on top of the DR call. And I do exactly the same amount of DR call as my colleagues and just add the IR call on top. Uh, so I think there is an understanding that that's the case among attendings and my co-residents. Are your co-residents, you know, will they say like, oh, wow, you guys do so much more work or are they just, oh, that's the IR guys. That's how they do it. Or what's what is, I mean, is there some kind of communication like that? Yeah, I think it's a mix. I think it it defers resident to resident how they perceive it. You know, and some of our, all of our DR residents, you know, they rotate through our, our department and see how busy we are. And they have an understanding and respect for what we do down there. And so they're always there to support me. They're like, you know, I know you work really hard. If there's any way I can help you uh, make switches with call, you know, They'll, they'll always be willing to, and they respect, you know, what we're doing and what we've built. So, you know, we get support from their side, for sure, from my co-residents. We, we are still a family, and, you know, we watch each other's backs. That's kind of what I wanted to know, because I know going through, we were like a love family of however many, you know, co-residents we had. And I wanted to see, is there a perception that you're like separate, or are you still part of the group? Oh, I'm definitely part of the group. Yeah, that's cool. I guess the the last thing I wanted to touch on on related to that was, do you feel like you're treated differently from your diagnostic cohort in your program? And Kartik, you went through first, so maybe you could address that first and then we'll go to Zeem. Yeah. So I don't think we are, especially, you know, from the attending standpoint, because that was another kind of question we had brought up when we met with a lot of the other chief residents was, you know, did the DR attendings kind of dismiss you or, you know, like, oh, this person's just here to check a box or not, you know? feel, you know, like you're not as interested. And we definitely don't have that here. And part of that is kind of the, I guess, expectations that are set by, you know, Joji. He's the rule and the expectation is that you're reading more volume than the DR residents. You know, you're trying to score better than they are on the exams and whatnot. And, you know, in true Joji fashion, those are the expectations. But, uh, and and I think the, 
diagnostic attendings appreciate that. And, you know, they recognize the work that we're doing and the work ethic and, you know, they match our enthusiasm. And so I, I never felt like I was looked at differently. Um, and, you know, and I approach diagnostics as like, you know, I want to make sure I know, you know, this the best I can, because it really is a very, you know, useful tool for what I do day to day. Like without knowing diagnostics, doing my job would definitely be a lot harder. And so I, I recognize that those months are so important for my ultimate goal of being, you know, a, a vascular interventional doc. And I really had to get that down. So when I was on diagnostics, you know, I did have to spend time doing some of my vascular stuff, but I would, you know, really approach it with a lot of enthusiasm. And I think that the diagnostic attendings appreciated that and kind of trying to set that precedent for my junior residents. I think, you know, they matched it. Harut did a you know, spectacular job on his rotations. Zaim's doing the same thing. And so that's kind of the, the culture that we've tried to create thus far. And because of that, the diagnostic attendings have appreciated that. And I think they don't treat us really any differently. So there's no perception that you're like leaving early or anything like that. They know you're working hard. They're definitely not leaving early. <laughs> they're yeah. definitely not leaving early. They're they're philo first yeah. and last. <laughs> I <out>. figure <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're bringing it. I mean, I these would guys make are, the point of like walking by. <laughs> these guys are crushing their every rotation. They take it as like we're going to do this, and they're first and last out, and they bring it and they crush the in service and the core exams. You know, ninety plus percentile. So um, no, they 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 do well whatever they're on surgery internship, medicine internship. Whatever it may be, they're going to, they, they excel. Very proud of them. Awesome. Well, I wanted to, the, to t dovetail into the future. So you guys have really developed the program and I feel like you've got something really good going on, but I wanted to touch on where you think this is going and probably give Joji the chance to, to give his vision statement out there <laughs> <laughs> so, of where you know, he thinks the IR training program is going. Very good question. I think, you know, we're, it's all about recruitment and training, right? And so people historically went into our specialty may not have been those who wanted to kind of do this, right? But now that we've kind of became our own residency, more and more surgical types are entering the specialty and more of them are going to demand, require and demand this kind of clinical training. And when they get out, they're going to want that as well. And I think ultimately it's the right thing for patients and the public. And, and that's, that's why I truly believe in this. And so we have to change it. And we, we have a very busy sub-internship. So between anywhere between 10 and 20 students kind of pre-COVID and now back to post-COVID, you know, around three to five students per month will rotate with us. And so they're seeing this and taking these ideas with them wherever they go of incorporating ICU, because again, we're taking care of the sickest of the sick, doing interventions on them, uh, often without an anesthesia team, right? They have a critical aortic stenosis, EFs at 20%. They have uh, pulmonary hypertension. They have um, restrictive or obstructive lung disease with their you know, home oxygen, their ESRD, and then stage liver disease, to, to just name a few things that we're dealing with. And we need to have more intensive care training to manage these. And we're also dealing with a lot of bleeding, clotting, and sepsis throughout the human body. They're hypotensive. We need to feel comfortable with the norepinephrine drips in their sweets or cleverprex, like I said, or clavidipine drips and things of that nature in our sweets. And so by doing this integration training, you're really going to save some patient's outcomes. And the clinic is quintessential to doing the should we, not could we. And also, not only do you see what you do well, but more importantly, you see what you don't do well and how can you fix that. And you see the benefits of non-operative management, right? If a claudicant and you put them on an exercise regimen, salosols, you see the impact of that and how you can avoid a surgery or intervention on that patient population, right? Um, the wounds, right? We, when you have a CLI wound, you see the follow-up, you see 
how well that does. If it's an aneurysm, you see the degeneration of the neck uh, over 10, 15 years. You're seeing those things. If it's an HSC, you're seeing the recurrence of a new lesion, right? That pops up over time. Or you're seeing the progression of decompensated cirrhosis of the CITES and they're, and they're kind of end stage uh, issues. And that cannot be replicated without this kind of a model. It can't be done in a year. So I think the six-year integration, including a surgical internship where you get foundational skills, anatomy, pathology, as well as kind of the workflow are tremendously impactful. And so I think as more and more programs start to institute, they'll see the benefits. Now, this has been 12 years in the making, and it certainly wasn't my, only my idea. Listen to the, the Direct Pathways graduates, talking to Alan Matsumoto, who's been a mentor of mine from afar, you know, for aortic work, along with uh, Fritz Engel and Dake, et cetera. Um, it's been invaluable and kind of, you know, kind of instrumental in kind of guiding me to this, to this pathway. And now we're just tweaking it. I think we've talked about stuff offline. There, there are some things that you want to, you know, expound on or expand on in the program. And do you want to, you know, do you envision more trainees, less trainees? Yeah. Um, no. Are there things you, things you want to send people out for electives, things like that? Yeah, absolutely. So it's a very good point. So couple things. One is we would love to get a second uh, training spot because we certainly have the volumes. I mean, I mean, Harut's volumes are insane, right? Yeah, Karthik, I forget what you had as far as legs and oncology, uh, taste, Y90, and uh, aortas, but Harut's uh, beat that, right? What were your numbers again, Karthik? I forgot. Yeah, I did like, I did 130, like arterial, like lower extremity, revasks. I think like over 200 IO interventions. I wrote it down because I knew you were going to ask. <laughs> I did like over 50 aortas. And a lot of it was uh, diluted because of COVID. Um, and so Harut's numbers are even more like spectacular. I think he's done like twice as many legs. Well, uh, close to 180 or 90 legs or something like that. But anyway, the long and short of it is I think we could uh, uh, add an additional training. It's just funding. And the other thing that Karthik and Czar were going to do, they were going to go to Doug Beal's um, practice in Oklahoma and learn kind of the exciting MSK stuff and bring it back. And we've talked about those Zaim, you know, post-COVID, you know, things willing, go abroad, right? Work with the Marco Manzis or the Polinos in Italy or even um, go abroad and bring a unique skill set back to the States of things that are doing or Yoko Uno or Japan or wherever. Could do that extra, extra month um, and bring it back, you know? So I think these are things that now we're looking at advanced kind of training in their PGY6 year as they kind of really conquer all these thumps early on. So that's kind of our move moving yeah, forward. Yeah, that's awesome. Goals. You know, I work with a vascular surgeon. He was at MGH, I think, for training about 10 years ago. And he was telling me how they, they have an elective year where they, you know, essentially can do whatever they want. And he went to South South Africa and did trauma surgery for a whole, he ended up doing that for a whole year uh, and then came back with just like this immense experience beyond anybody. But I think that's, you know, maybe somewhere we're going where we have the ability to shape the training more and more. One other thing I want to bring up, you know, so one of the things I've also recognized is really important to be able to kind of manage that surgical internship and it's really come off with a strong foothold. And Karthik and Zaim can attest to it because they listened to it to T and it really helped them during their intern years, et cetera. Is that fourth year has to be legitimate. It has to be a real rotation, busy sub eyes, like something like Bisla, you know, Kaiser, where you're coming in, you're really honing your, your comfort, you're doing clinic consults and catheter time, not just in the OR. And you're seeing everything and also doing other away rotations in that of vascular surgery or surgical oncology rotations are invaluable. ICU is critical your fourth year, cardiology consult. So you want to get these things under your belt. So like, again, two or three IR, uh, rota VIR rotations, vascular surgery, ICU, cardiology consults are invaluable and a surgical kind of sub-I on top of that to get you ready for internship beyond. And I found that 
to be really important to get them on the right footing leaving. So when we're looking at students applying to our program, we always look at the, their fourth year and see what they've done or what they're doing to give us an idea how ready they're going to be to, to implement this proto- protocol. That's interesting. So the using that fourth year for, for more utility yes. coming out. I because like we've seen the students who haven't done that really struggle. So that's probably a huge word of advice. Yeah, we've seen this. Uh, I think that's a huge the... word of advice for uh, students coming out. Yeah. All right. Do you guys, uh, anything else? Anything else you guys wanted to bring up? No, I mean, this is awesome. This is like a, a dream come true. Because we listen to that <laughs> podcast so much. We love it. And like to be on it is amazing. You guys got the RFS godfather. That's what we call him, Joji. <laughs> <laughs> Pied Piper. Yeah, you got to go through him. Yeah, thank you, everybody. Yeah, thanks, Don and Backtable. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts, Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon, with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.